Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. Cambodia's Tonle Sap is the largest inland lake in Southeast Asia. Each year during the monsoon, this freshwater lake experiences an incredible hydrological phenomenon in which it is inundated with swelling waters from the Mekong River, causing the flow of water to reverse. This natural phenomenon sees the lake rise by up to tenfold in some places. Then, as the dry season returns and the water starts to ebb, the Tonle Sap flows back out and the lake returns to its pre-monsoon level. For centuries, the seasonal inundation of the lake has supported the fish and the birds that call this lake home. But Tonle Sap is facing a triple environmental threat. Climatic changes in the form of droughts, the damming of the Mekong River, and overfishing. These environmental changes have a widespread impact, not only on the fish and the birds, but on the floating villages of Tonle Sap. To share more, I'm joined by Dr. Josephine Gillespie, a senior lecturer in the School of Geosciences in the Faculty of Science at the University of Sydney. Dr. Gillespie researches environmental regulation and people place dynamics across the region with a particular focus on Cambodia. Her research projects have focused on protected areas, especially the management of world heritage places and wetlands. She's the author of Protected Areas, a Legal Geography Approach, published in 2020, and co-editor of Legal Geography, Perspectives and Methods, also published in 2020, a productive year. Jo has also published a number of book chapters and research articles about environmental management in the region. Joey, thank you so much for joining us here on SEAC Stories. It's very much a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Joe. when we were preparing for this podcast, you mentioned to me that you're a human geographer, not a physical geographer. Can you tell me the difference? Of course. Well, geography is very much um, the integrated discipline, but we do tend to focus in on our specialisations as researchers. So as a human geographer, I tend to be interested in social processes From my point of view, I'm interested in human environmental connections, as opposed to a physical geographer who will be looking at material landscapes oftentimes, so that's rivers and waterways, lakes, you know, ocean and sea environments. So somebody who studies the material landscapes, if you like, as opposed to kind of the social dynamics of places. So all geographers are interested in people-place connections, and we have, obviously, within the School of Geosciences, we have people who are doing all sorts of different types of research. You know, we have different flavours amongst the human geographers themselves, be that economic or political. And I'm an environmental legal geographer, so I'm interested in that dynamic between people, place and the regulatory settings that create places and that people live by. Um, And so that brings in my background in law, of course, as well as um, in geography. So that's a disciplinary setting in which I exist. Fantastic. I think that sets us up really well to talk about uh, these floating villages of Tonle Sap, which I referred to in the introduction. Can you tell us more about these floating villages? Um, the, the floating villages, I think, are actually absolutely extraordinary. Um, as we know, Tonle Sap is, is known as the Great Lake in Khmer, and it is home and has been home to floating villages for a very, very long time. And these floating village communities 
literally, you know, they sit and they rise with the ebb and flow of this enormous lake that spreads, as you say, with the backflow of the Tonglesap River and that seasonal productivity, which gives us this massive landscape of productivity, both in and amongst the floating forests of the Tonglesap, that the people who live on the lake, literally on the lake with their schools and their medical centres and their homes exist in this space and have incredibly vibrant and ongoing communities based in and around the resources of the lake, but also in trading and tourism as well. And they are located, the Tonglesap is actually a very big lake, of course, and they're located all around the edges of that enormous inland lake in central Cambodia. Can you give us a bit more of a sense about how many people call these villages home? Uh, That's an excellent question. And I wish that I could give you a lovely update on the census, but I don't have that information to hand. I believe the last census is now couple of years ago, the information that we mostly worked with was actually dated way back in 2008. So in terms of estimating the number of people, we have varying estimates, anything from as low as about 1.2 million, which we think is probably now quite out of date, up to about 2 million people live in and around the Tomlisap. Yeah, okay. Well, that, that does give us some idea of how many people call the villages home. What are they made out of? They must be some sort of flexible and robust material. Is it bamboo or something like that? Yes, yes, all all of those sorts of things. In fact, um, many of the more contemporary home for some of the the wealthier inhabitants are actually kind of weatherboards. But some of the older, older homes are certainly bamboo and some of the communities are on sticks. Others are on 44-gallon drums and float and, and various types of floating devices. Um, And they're all various types of things. Of course, there's no bricks, so it's all lightweight material. Um, But some of the more contemporary things like some of the schools and some of the medical facilities, they're actually in weatherboards. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that, whether people commute to land to visit hospitals or schools or whether those sort of facilities are available in the floating villages as well. Yeah, well, they are available in the floating village, depending on where the floating village is. Some of the floating villages are more accessible than others. So I work primarily in two floating villages. One of them is far less accessible. That's in the Bong Chamar area, which is, you know, about a six-hour boat ride. But one of the other ones is actually not too far from Siem Reap. And, of course, Siem Reap is an international gateway town because it's home of the world-famous, World Heritage-listed Angkor Archaeological Park. That's about, oh, it takes us about an hour to get out and then by boat another hour. So it's a couple of hours out of Siem Reap. So you can commute, but most people don't commute. Most people are actually permanently based in the villages. And most of the villages, when they are of a reasonable size, like the one that um, we worked out of the last field trip that we did in Prayak Toll, which is up on the northeastern edge of the Tonlisap near Siem Reap, have schools and small medical facilities. So if anything's significant, they have to go into the big major centres. But for most of the time, most of their needs are dealt with on site in the villages. Mm, okay. And you just mentioned Angkor there, and I understand that Tonlesap has played a key role in supporting livelihoods in the region dating back to Angkor times in the ninth century. Yes, that's my understanding as well. Now, I am not an historian nor an archaeologist, but I do have colleagues who work in this field, and that is my understanding as well, that there's been an intimate connection between the big Great Lake and the great Khmer civilization of Angkor, dating back for very many years, yes. Yeah, and of course, so we're here today to talk about what is changing in these in Tonle Sap and with these floating villages. So I wanted to turn now to the protected wetlands area, which I think is called Ramsar. 
That's right, yeah. Yeah, so when when was the Ramsar Protected Wetlands Area established and, and for what purpose? Yeah, so um, Ramsar is our big global environmental treaty for protecting wetlands of international significance and importance. And in particular, when it was first came into being in 1974, it was designed to protect water birds actually associated with wetlands. But it has since that time grown in its emphasis. And now we think of Ramsar as being the global environmental treaty that protects all wetlands across the globe. And so Cambodia became a signatory to the Ramsar Convention way back in 1999, actually. So they've been a um, signatory to Ramsar, the protection of internationally significant global wetlands, quite some time. And parts of the Tonle Sap ascribed that listing. There's a number of sites around, but the two that I've concentrated on really in my work have been the um, Bong Tamar and Associated River System and Floodplain Area, which is about 28,000 hectares. So it's quite a long, big area. And the one that's up in Prague Toll, which is adjacent to CM Ramp. So these have been classified because these are really valuable ecosystems. They have extraordinarily rich ecology. And so the preservation mechanism is designed to preserve that wide array of plant and animal species. You know, it's designed to minimise biodiversity conservation loss, really, and to protect many of the threatened species, which are some of them are actually on things like the IUCNs, that's International Union for the Conservation of Nature's red list, and other protected area lists even within Cambodia. The protected areas, they're places where we do in situ conservation. So it's one thing to sign up to an international convention. It's another thing entirely to enforce it. How is Cambodia going on that front? It's a, it's a mixed effort, I think. In some senses, it's actually really, really wonderful that the national government signs up to these international environmental obligations once they become signatories to things like the Ramsar Convention or for the preservation of Angkor, even the World Heritage Convention, Once they become signatories, they then require to put in place national laws to ensure the preservation and conservation of these places. And they do that. So they've been quite aspirational in terms of protecting places. But then you need to work through the kind of different governance systems that exist in Cambodia from that national level and those commitments to uphold international treaty obligations for environmental protection through to the way that um, things actually work on the ground in that kind of localised setting, be it in and around Angkor or um, in these floating villages which are protected under the wetlands regime. That's something that I certainly have been exploring and I think needs further exploration because what we see as we translate international laws to localised conditions is a mixed bag of success. We have, if you like, in some senses, the imposition of westernised standards of law and law enforcement on kind of pre-existing communities. So I often describe this as a clash between the LAW of law, that's that kind of westernised system of law, with the LORE of customary normative approaches to decision-making and conflict resolution that might exist at a village level. This is fascinating research. So I'd like to turn a bit more closely to your research now. And I understand you've been working closely with colleagues to examine how these floating villages understand and respond to these environmental changes that are taking place in the region. Can you tell us who you're working with and how you're conducting this research? 
So um, some of the more recent research that we've done over the last few years has actually been based at Preg Toll, and we're really, really interested in how people see environmental change. And that environmental change is coming to us from a number of different pressures. It's coming to us from um, overfishing in the Tonley Sap, and it's coming to us from climatic and environmental change pressures. So that's to do with the big picture climate change issues, which we see sometimes manifest in these big environmental systems. So we're thinking along the lines of increasing droughts in a region which is not necessarily always subject to droughts. And the other pressure that's coming out on areas like the Tonley Sap comes from the damming of the mainstream Mekong River itself, of course, because the Tonley Sap and the Tonley Sap River is so intimately connected with that seasonal backflow to what's going on on the mainstream Mekong as well. So together with a colleague, Associate Professor Dan Penny in the School of Geosciences, as well as people on the ground in Cambodia as well, our colleagues in Cambodia, we've been trying to kind of put together some research. Well, we have been doing this research, but it's an ongoing project, looking at different sort of scenarios for people who live on the Tonley Sap around their pre-existing ideas of what climate change might look like and what they might predict in the future. So we've been focusing in on most recently environmental scenarios regarding three aspects. And so that's to do with the floods that happen seasonally um, and what their experiences of them are, what their memory of them are. And then we're looking, so that's kind of a memory, looking back what the contemporary understanding is, and then looking forward what they think is going to happen into the future. And we've looked at, so we've looked at floods, we're looking at fishes. So we're looking at how many fish are available and what sort of stock they're catching. And then we're looking at impacts on the flooded forests. And so that goes to issues around drought. And of course, in 2016, that Tonley Sap, particularly in that northern area, had a phenomenal big fire season. It's not unusual to get some fire activity in the flooded forests which dry out with the coming and going, the ebbing and flowing of the lake. But this particular season was actually phenomenal. And there was NASA imagery which was published. There was a lot of media around this big, big fire event, which of course has real and genuine implications for how people actually live along the lake there. So the fire in particular impacted on the wetland forests fringing the lake. Yeah, it did, which had never really happened in most people's living memory were actually burnt out. So it went into the protected area and not too far from some of the villages. There was a genuine lack of water, so people were struggling to put the fires out, which sounds ridiculous because we're in a wetland and a giant lake. Um, But such was the drought in this particular time. So that was, I think, a little bit of a signal to us. And it happened just before we did the last lot of interviewing. And so it really came out in our results that people were quite concerned about the way that the lake was now subject to fire in a way it hadn't been before. Now, there were various reasons as to why this was in the short term, including the overgrazing in some of the areas to the northwest is what some of our respondents were suggesting. And what happened was because it was proximate to the protected area and it burnt out the protected area, You see, um, and of course, people are prohibited from going into the protected area to support their livelihood. So from fishing and they can't raise any fish in the protected area. So they live adjacent to it. But what happened was when the fire comes through, it means that all the stock that's actually living in the protected area, all the animals and the vegetation, or particularly the animals move out of the protected area and into areas where people actually are fishing, so in the community fishing areas. So that's actually quite problematic. (laughs) I can imagine. 
I want to ask you about the role of gender and in particular whether gender is something that is considered when it comes to protected area governance. Gender is such an interesting angle to take when we think about how we actually put protected areas together because when we put a protected area together, we give it a boundary and we buffer it and we create prohibitions. We say you can and cannot do these things beyond this certain point on a place, a location on a map. Now that is not always necessarily where that place in the map is, is not necessarily always done with great consultation and participation from local communities as we translate those global regimes to localised conditions. And one of the dynamics that we see playing out in some of these places that we've seen in our data is that there's been a lack of adequate consultation with the gender dynamics of how people live in their daily lives. And in particular, what we've been finding is that women and men act differently in terms of their fishing responsibilities. So if they are living proximate to a protected area, we're actually finding that women, their chances for expanding their livelihood opportunities are limited. And it's because of the physical proximity to the protected area because it's actually a situation where they can't extend their remit for fishing because they can't be out for hours and hours each day or indeed stay overnight in order to go beyond the protected area to find appropriate fishing places. So it's a really interesting dynamic that people don't necessarily think about when they're putting in place these global environmental protection regimes in terms of the -the on-the-ground realities of how people actually live. Uh, You said that this research project is still ongoing despite the limitations imposed by COVID, but has your project team reached sort of a consensus or an idea about what needs to change in order to better manage environmental protection and people place dynamics in a Cambodian context? Yeah, look, I think that we can learn some really distinctive lessons from what's going on here, and that is to do much better consultation on the ground before we put in place the rules and regulations which impact people. I think that's a really, really important point to make about how we do this that we and that we take account of by way of example the gender dynamics which play out in these places and we could even go beyond that to other identity issues to look at how that plays out before we put in place hard rigid boundaries and then the hard rigid rules that are associated with those boundaries if we think more about place dynamics we can do a much better job at how we regulate these places And the environmental laws, therefore, will actually be, if you like, a little bit more customised, but then they're far less likely to be breached, okay? We have much better compliance when we understand the people-place dynamic, okay? So really what we're saying in this research, what I'm finding in this research is that the closer we get to localised expectations and localised uses of places, the better compliance can be for overarching biodiversity conservation narratives and legal goals, if you like. Joe, what sort of support have you received to conduct this research? Well, it's been wonderful to have the support, particularly the funding support coming through the CA organisation at the University of Sydney. That has actually enabled us to do this collaborative research. We, particularly working with colleagues in the physical geography space, where we're looking at this kind of bridging the social and the natural sciences to enable community adaptation to work better. And that has been funded by CAEC and we're very grateful for that initiative. Yeah, fantastic. I think that's a really great point on which to wrap up. And, you know, I think when we think about 
protected area governance, we might assume that the imposition of protected areas is automatically and necessarily a good thing. But I think you've brought us a lot more nuance to the discussion and we're really grateful for sharing your research with us today on SEAC Stories. Thank you. It's absolutely my pleasure and thank you for having me. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our SEAC Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.